Hello and welcome to another special episode of the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. In a departure from our normal format, we bring you another live recording from Dragon Meat 2021. This is the panel on the new Rivers of London role-playing game. Paul Fricker joins Rivers of London line editor Lynn Hardy, along with Rivers of London author Ben Aronovich, to discuss the imminent release of the new RPG. Welcome. Thank you very much for coming to the Rivers of London panel. I'm Lynn Hardy. Well, oh. <laughs> really, really. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, so obviously, two years ago, pretty much to this day, we were downstairs announcing that we had the Rivers of London license. Obviously, a lot has happened in those two years. You know, global pandemics things um but um so what we thought we'd do is we'd get you all back in again and we'd have a bit of a chat about how things are going so i'm lynn hardy i'm the line editor i'm paul fricker um i'm what am i lynn you're I'm the lead game designer the lead game designer <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I i i have a, an official title so it's two years to find out what you are. Yes. <laughs> and of course you know who this is. Yes, my name is uh, James Swallow. I'm an author. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Beronovich, and I'm a bit worried that he doesn't know what his job is. <laughs> <laughs> so he doesn't need to know what his job is. Okay. He's done it. All right, that's right. Then. That's, that's the key thing. Um, so I'm going to do a little bit of an introduction about how the game came to be. Then we're going to have Ben do a little bit, hopefully, um, about what happened when I cornered him in Waterstones in Newcastle and presented him with a card. <laughs> it's a, Do you want a game? Have you ever fancied having a game? Um, and then we'll get Paul to talk about the game design process uh, and how things are going. And then I'll do a little bit at the end about, you know, where we are. Don't ask for when it's going to be released. I am not tempting the publishing gods. Because the moment we say when, that'll be it. Um, so it will be next year though, but that's as much as I'm going to tell you. It will be next year sometime. So, um, I was introduced to the Rivers of London books by a friend constantly going, you should read these, you should read these, you'll really enjoy them. And then a couple of years later I finally got round to it. And yeah, he was right, I did. Um, and then... I mean, Ben, whenever he does book tours, always seems to avoid Newcastle for some reason. I don't know, it's because Edinburgh. <laughs> it's not that nice. No, 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 it's because you, you, the way the tours work, you go, you go Edinburgh, and then you skip Newcastle, maybe you do a lunch, and then you go on to York. That's disgraceful. I know. That's what I said. That's why we ended up in Newcastle long enough for you to badger me. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, the one time he did turn up, I was there hours in advance at the front of the queue. I hadn't got my official Chaosium business card at that point, so I'd have to scrawl my Chaosium address on my own one. Um, so I badgered him and sort of like cornered him before I'd let him sign anybody else's books. So thankfully, um, you know, things came to pass and this is why we're here. And for a long time, I thought Rivers of London would make a great role-playing game because it's perfect for it. It's investigative. It's got that relationship with Call of Cthulhu. We're great, you know, as a company for, for, you know, we are, we're really nice to work with and work for. So, you know, that's how we come to get to it. But I'm going to let Ben tell the story because Ben's very good at doing raconteuring stuff, aren't you? Yes, well, I, I'd like to point out that I, I practically bit a hand off. Um, this is because I've been going, when is someone going to do a role-playing game about my stuff? And um, I'm a BRP person, right, because I like a bit of crunch. I don't like class systems and I'm old. So I, I basically, you know, I grew up on Call of Cthulhu and Traveller and things like that. I like skill systems and, and so, and I like percentages because I understand percentages. Don't tell me that a percentage dice doesn't actually reflect percentages. I don't want to hear about it. Um, but I like percentage systems because I actually know what 80% is. I don't understand what 7 out of 14 is for rolling a dice or something. So uh, I, I'm also, Call of Cthulhu is a good kind of like modern setting. 
sort of system it's 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 quite crunchy it's not very it's not over crunchy but and, and i love the fact that it concentrates on getting the setting details right which is very important for rivers of london is the setting so uh, pretty much i was i wanted them to ask me I just didn't know how to get hold of them because they were going bust. I think the first couple of times I thought about it, <laughs> uh, uh, and this, you know, and this is understandable. It's the cycle of role-playing games, as far as I can tell you. They get, they start, they have success, they overextend, they go bust, they start, they succeed. And I was so pleased to find this had not happened. And then I, the, my next question was, yes, of course you can have the rights, and can I have loads of free stuff? Um, and so I now have like I now have like Master Knocker <laughs> Orange Express <laughs> and not a lot of shelf room left um, keep telling you you need to build tables out of it yes I, I think so I think I'm going to do I'm going to build furniture out of it um, in the future I also get the PDFs because my eyesight's terrible now and so I can't actually read the actual rule book so they stay mint in the box as they say but I like looking at them because they're so colourful look at that so um, especially since I, I lusted after um, horror on the Orient Express for a long time I couldn't afford it when I was younger and now I have this lovely deluxe version of it so that's very nice um, yeah so it was so really when, when this was presented to me the card was presented to me I was, I was primed it then took me about two months to explain to my agent that you don't make any money out of role playing games <laughs> right, because he doesn't believe in that he believes in just suck the blood out of everything because he's an agent and that's his job so it took me quite a long time to explain no we're not going to really make any money out of this there's no point asking a huge amount for a license because it, it, it just means less will get spent on the production um, and, but we will get a lovely colourful book with pictures in it and that was basically what sold him because he's a bit of a he's a, he's a book collector and so therefore the idea that he would get some nice mint A4 paper hardback with like lovely pictures in he, he was, went for that so that's how we got where we are today yes yes and then they said then we got into the nitty gritty of how to do the magic system which was a bit of a nightmare <laughs> <laughs> but this is where Paul comes in. So, Paul, are you going to are you going to give sort of like an overview of 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 what we were aiming for and and what you've been up to? And I will do my best. Yes. Uh, so, one of our design goals was to try and make it a, a, a lighter system, a, a good system for new people coming in because it's Rivers of London and you know best-selling series of novels. Uh, so. You know, having read the books before I came to, to thinking of it as a game, it, you know, I could kind of read between the lines and see that, well, I didn't know that was the case, but I kind of felt like these, uh, the, the spell orders and the use of forms for the, the things putting together, this feels a lot like Ars Magica and uh, some other games. And then talking to Ben and, uh, you know, finding out that, as he just said, he's into games and actually, He's somewhat an authority on games as well, and uh, so uh, yeah. So you know, you've spent many sessions playing Ars Magica and games like that. But to me, I kind of looked at that system, and I spent you know a lot of time playing Ars Magica, you know, years ago, and really loved it. But I don't think that the, the spontaneous magic of putting things together. Uh, so in Ars Magica, you have a, a form and a technique, and you put them together to sort of create a spontaneous spell. I don't think that's something we wanted to do. And I don't think on the whole that's something that happens in Rivers of London. They're, they're, no. This is a this is somewhat different take on that. So we wanted to mesh that with what we have uh, in Call of Cthulhu, where we've got spells. In Call of Cthulhu, we don't have levels of spells. So we've, we've sort of meshed the two. So you're using magic points and the the forms give you your magic point cost for the spell. So a weir light, you know, just casting a small ball of light is it's just the first level spell, if you like, or a, yeah, a first order spell. So that's just one magic point. So we just, and then and then going up through the forms. Now there are other things that affect the spells. Um, now I'm always concerned if I'm getting the pronunciation right, but inflectentes. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, and various things like that 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 can come in and adjust spells in all sorts of different ways. Basically, they're just boosts. So they're, they're just, in mechanical terms, they're just a way of altering the effect of the spell, making it more powerful, adding some bells and whistles to it. So rather than having all these Latin terms, you're 
I'm spending another point to boost it. I'm spending another magic point to boost it. And and the, the kind of gloss on that, the color on that, if you want, is you know adding in those those other terms. Probably if, as a play group, you're familiar with that, because I think also, from a design point of view, we're aware that, you know, you as uh, you, you you've bought the the book, and because you've read like a whole bunch of the novels, but maybe your your play group you've got somebody else who's read one of them and maybe sorry ben cover your ears at this point maybe you've got some players who haven't read the books oh no horror um so you know it's got to be accessible to them as well so if it's all like lots of latin terms and overly complex we sort of felt like that's going to make it that's going to put a a barrier to entry really there was one other consideration which uh, is quite important is it had to be quite granular because otherwise it would be massive spoilers. Because I know how the magic system works sort of at a kind of very thermodynamics mechanical level. But nobody in the world, the world of the books knows. And if we put it in a role play game, everyone would know. So we had to, we had to kind of make it quite granular to obfuscate the actual underlying system that underlines yeah. the magic system yeah. in, in, in the books. So that was another reason for making yeah. it quite granular. And the reason we didn't go with kind of like the Oz Magica idea is because for experienced gamers, that's something that an experienced GMs, if your player goes, oh, well, I'll have that bit and I'll have that bit and I'll pop them together, what does it do? I mean, an experienced GM who's been doing this for years will be able to pick up and run with that. But the whole point is we want to try and encourage new people to come in, fans of the books who maybe haven't gamed before. So we can't do because that's a really unfair thing to do to players who haven't really played before. And it's not a fair thing to do to GMs who aren't as confident or experienced because that's putting a lot of weight on their shoulders which was why because we did have these discussions mm. didn't we right in the yeah, very yeah. early days of well how how do we tackle that magic system to keep the feel of the books without putting a huge weight on the gm so that's why we went with the sort of like no let's do the spell levels it's proving interesting trying to work out how to do a spell tree diagram at the I'm moment sure it is, yeah. <laughs> that may or may not end up in the book because it's kind of like a bit at the moment but so some spells have prerequisites that you need to know other spells before you can learn that spell so there's this kind of spell tree uh you know that, that uh, explains what spells you can learn at the moment through. is probably a more accurate uh, okay. description it's like a bit of a jackson pollock at the moment there's also the problem in fact in in the world of rivers of london the more complicated spells the less flashy they are so like so like a fireball is like a quite a low level spell hitting someone with a big piano it's quite a low-level spell, but but actually doing something complicated like making someone's hand move is actually like a fifth-order mm. spell, and you, you have that problem. So it gets less less exciting the further up the spell tree you go. But Ben kept getting sort of like word documents full of. Well, I've been through the books, and these are all the spells we've found. What level do you think these are? <laughs> it's just backwards and forwards. Yeah, and then like... I had to think about it because it's like when you're doing a novel, you can gloss over things. You can go, oh, I'll worry about that later. Uh, but when you're doing a, designing a game system, you have to explain things. You can't just go, oh, well, it's vague, it's wibbly-wobbly, look over there. Exciting. <laughs> <laughs> but again, of course, we've got the other side of magic. We've got what the Demimonds are up to, which we also have to address. So can you tell the audience a little, a little bit about that? A little bit about the Demimond. I mean, if I just go back to, like, creating the standard characters are, you know on the most part human characters with some uh, with, with an option of playing fake characters um, and shall I, shall I just talk a little bit about the the rules as compared yes. to Call of Cthulhu perhaps yes. so as I said we were looking at a kind of lighter version of um, of Call of Cthulhu so you know if you're familiar with that if you're familiar with BRP we've done things like strip the stat, the characteristics down to, to just five of them uh, and the skills rather than having like a lot of skills on the sheet you just kind of got I think nine core skills and a couple of combat skills so in terms of combat they're just firearms and fighting uh, and, and everything else is just you know subsumed in with those in terms of um, yeah we're just talking a little bit about combat uh, we've ditched hit points so you've just got levels of wounds um, and one of the things that was interesting coming out of the play testing uh, because when it came to the playtesting, we were very, and thank you very much to the groups that, that took part in that. And some of them actually recorded their sessions and I was able to listen to them. 
And as, uh, as somebody getting feedback on actual play, it's great being able to listen to them because they can sort of say, oh yeah, that, you know, that worked fine. Then you listen to it perhaps and realize that it worked fine, but they perhaps weren't doing quite what I intended them to do. You know, that's, that's all part of the communication process if I haven't written it clearly enough uh, or they've misinterpreted it or whatever. So um, yeah, that was interesting. I'm not quite sure where I was going with that, but. Uh, You're talking about characters. Yes. Playing characters. So there's also the demi-monde. So we've put those into the, there's, there's, there's like the basic rules are all there. And then there's an additional rules chapter. And the additional rules chapter does what it says. It brings in additional rules that you can, that you can use parts of, or you can totally ignore that bit and just play the, the standard game. And there's also the rogues gallery, which, uh, which is in where we describe the various, uh, um, denizens of uh, the world, including Peter and Nightingale, uh, but also Beverly Brook and uh, Old Father Thames and, and, uh, and all of those. And we had the idea that uh, it'd be a good idea if we wrote this in Peter's voice, which, uh, which I now feel a bit, yeah, I mean, I, hopefully that came out all right, Ben. I think Ben right. has uh, had, a, had a read through that. It was quite uh, intimidating trying to write that. Uh, well, you did a wonderful job of that. Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, and then I came to do it, and it's, uh, oh, this is... Uh, Most of my you know. career has been based on that principle. Yes, I know, so <laughs> somewhat in awe of that. Um, because I think, well, I, I guess one of the things is, when I'm writing Call of Cthulhu, I've got, got carte blanche to make stuff up. Um, so if I've got a character, I, I can just, you know, because they're, they're a blank slate. So when we're making NPCs for Call of Cthulhu, just do whatever you want. When I'm working on characters for... For, for Ben's setting, it's yeah, it's not make up what I want. It's it's try to be as true to the the books as we can. But like like you've said, Ben, the, the books don't always explain everything because why would they? Um, so sometimes you know trying to sort of go through the books and sort of extrapolate all the bits about a character, but there's going to be bits that you haven't written about or, or aspects that you haven't written about or you know that you perhaps know that perhaps aren't on the page because they're, they're supposed to be mysterious, well, right? Uh, my favourite example of that is um, uh, Beverly's Yoruba skill. <laughs> like, <laughs> I had to think about that. How much Yoruba does Beverly actually speak? And I thought, well, you know, about 30% is about right for it, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, this is it, because we do sort of like, Ben, how does this work? And then I'll get an email back going, oh, I've got to think about that now. Mm. <laughs> and then we'll get an answer, which is great. But yeah, I'm, unfortunately, I'm afraid there are some things we have been sworn to absolute secrecy on. So we know how things are working, but we're not going to be telling you. Well, we have kind of, I mean, like I said, we've, we've hidden quite a lot beneath the kind mm. of plan. You know, we have, we developed a, a, the luck transfer mechanic, which is because the demimond, we didn't want everything to become too mechanical. So the Newtonian magic is very mechanical, but we, I, I always wanted the demimond to be a bit more whimsical. So that they, they do kind of like a bit more fancy and then they're kind of like fey weirdness. And so, of course, you can't have like a spell list for that. You have to have... So they came up with the... the I like the affinity system, the affinity in there. But also, so very powerful members of the Demimond have a luck pool, basically, and they can just alter the world using this luck pool. But they can also... The very, very powerful ones can give you a boon. They can give characters a boon, which is, means that they can give you luck points, which you can then spend as long as it's within the... I like this bit, within the parameter of what they're selecting. And then you can get the whole thing, like, putting geezers on people without actually having a kind of separate system for that. And this allows you to cover quite a multitude of, like, what weird behaviour by the rivers and, and, and people like that. So that I was very pleased with that system. Now, I like that system. I may, I may even nick quite large chunks of it for things. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, that was one of the challenges, wasn't it? It was reflecting those two very different sort of styles, the, the formal style of Newtonian magic and the much more, as you say, whimsical, off the wall, moving in mysterious ways kind of powers of the rivers and the demimond. Yeah, because in a, um, in a novel, you, it's kind of what's on the page is, is all there is. Um, whereas in a role-playing game, you've kind of got to explain to people, you know, yes, they can do this thing, you know, so Beverly can flood Covent Garden, but 
obviously that's not the only thing she can do. She can do all sorts of other things, but they're not in the book necessarily. So you've kind of got to communicate to people who are going to play the game what the scope of her powers are. Um, And yeah, I mean, a lot of that was sort of covered by, okay, that that whole luck system of, because luck is is a... is a source of power in the game, if you like. Um, a source of being able to do things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Yeah. So, I mean, because I, I adore the look Cross from Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. I think they're wonderful. And we want to, you know, so we've, we've pushed that a lot more. They're not optional in Rivers of London. You know, that is a, in there from the go. That humans have um, luck that they can spend, so, so to sort of help get them, you know, if things aren't quite going their way with dice, they can spend luck to alter the roles so that you know they they squeak success if things are going horribly wrong. So we've we've kept that because I adore it. I think that's one of the nicest things that came in with seventh edition was the luck spending rules. They're wonderful for storytelling. Um, so we kind of amplified that even further for the demi So because it felt right, didn't it? Mm. That look would be yeah. the base of their power, mechanically speaking, because you can use it to affect things in well, weird and wonderful ways. It, uh, it came from, the, the thinking for me came from the, when I was thinking about how the world that Beverly lives in, because as it became more prominent, I had to think about what kind of world, that, and Beverly's the kind of person, as she's walking towards a traffic light, uh, the little man will go green. And for Beverly, it's a bit of an upset when the little man doesn't go green when she walks towards the traffic light. Because that's that's the world she lives in. She especially when she's near her watershed. When she's near her watershed, she can't pay for drinks. She can't get she can't get gets free drinks in a bar because in pubs because people will just automatically give her a free drink when she goes into a pub. Um, yeah, so that's what we brought in with glamour, wasn't it? Yeah. The fact they've got their glamour, so they can, you know, if they if they're in their fort at their watershed, well, they, you know, they, they live this kind of privileged, well. lucky life because they're powerful. Divinities, basically, they're powerful divinities. I'm, I'm minor divinities, but divinities all the same. And and the the luck kind of fits very well into that. So so a, a person playing a kind of low level genius loci or or oh no, we're not giving them the rules to oh, do no, genius loci yet. yet. No 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 no. So we're we're kind of like for the for the additional rules in this book. Um, it's kind of Zach Palmer, if you know the novels, it's kind of Zach Palmer levels of demi-monde we're giving you the rules for. Because obviously we have to keep something back for future supplements and to keep you, keep you invested. You know, if we put everything in that we'd really like to cover, we're talking at least Masks of Nyarlathotep box set plus probably a bit more in terms of like doorstops that we would be writing for you. So, you know, we've had to be quite strict with ourselves as to what we put in and what we leave out. We've got to, we've got to you know, keep you interested and keen and get you coming back for more <laughs> later on, you say. Should we say something about the settings? Yes. Plural. Settings, yes. The well, originally, <laughs> I had hoped, we'd, obviously, we've got to kind of do London, because it's, it's vaguely important in the books, you know. Um, and I, I, obviously, we've got to do the US because we have a lot of US comp- um, customers and it's a US company. Um, I mean, of course, then there's Germany, which is because it's very big in Germany, isn't yes. it? And I like Germany, so, you know. But again, this was a case of it would have been sort of like probably the length of this table, to be quite honest, uh, if we kept everything in. So the core book, we are assuming as the default that you will be playing humans who are attached to the folly in London. So that's the core default setting. But if you want, there is an America chapter written by Helena, who's in the audience, our wonderful Helena Nash. Um, so she's done a smashing job of extrapolating what is in the novels from Ben's stuff, you know, with Ben's input as well. Um, so that if you really want to, you can actually run games in the States. And I'm going to let Ben say a little bit about the ethos for that, because that was, that was a fun set of conversations. Yeah, I, I mean, basically, um, you see, the London restriction, if you're playing as a police officer in a metropolitan police officer or adjacent, you are restricted in your movement. So it's exciting. You're kind of uh, restricted in some ways, you have empowered in other ways. So I thought some people don't like that kind of setting. I mean, I've played enough role-playing games to know that at least one person is going to test every system to destruction and, and break every rule that you put in front of them, regardless of what the GM says. And I thought, well, in that case, we'll make America kind of like the Wild West, which 
is ironic, really. And uh, so the, America is like the place where people go around shooting vampires. And, and it's basically, you know, we thought of going around in classic, you know, power, muscle cars and getting themselves into trouble impersonating FBI officers. Or, you know, if you want to play a more kind of like British style game, but in America you can play uh, an associate of Kimberly Reynolds and be a... a or, or one of the organisations, like the East Coast organisations, or you can be a monster hunter, or you can be a group of you know, people thrown together who are from all of these backgrounds and fight it out, as well as solve the adventure. And that gave you a much more free-form, kind of exciting, kind of, um, and dangerous, dangerous yes. environment to, you know, to play in. For those people that prefer, like, like a bit of gunplay, some people do like a bit of gunplay. Like, you know, some people don't want to be solving crimes, they want to be shooting people. And that's perfectly valid role-playing choice, if not a real-life choice. Well, you know, if you want to, if you want to be doing your, your monster-hunting vlog, you can go and do your monster-hunting vlog. Yeah, oh, yes. You can, because yeah. because Helena has written some really lovely model <laughs> groups that you can look at for ideas for your American-based campaigns. You know, it's like just putting to... I mean, let's face it, you basically said to me you wanted it to be X-Files meets Supernatural. Yes. <laughs> That's basically what it was. Yeah. yeah you know. <laughs> I mean, also you can do like that small town with a with a with a historic past that they've hidden under the. Oh, Erie, Indiana. They, yeah, they buried under the you know the cathedral or something. You know, you can do all those <laughs> kinds of things. I mean, personally, I would I I thought it would be fun to do, uh, supernatural amongst the strip malls, because I think it'd be interesting to take that kind of very bland. American kind of environment where you have like strip malls and no pedestrianisation and then have like supernatural creatures running around in there but um, you know this is, this is all stuff and it also gives a, a wide open scope for people to insert their own stories because I know people like to in America you have enough kind of land mass that you can invent an entire town drop it into you know, quite a big city and drop it into the middle of the Midwest and, and it doesn't seem odd that there is a city you've never heard of in the Midwest Whereas you can't really do a town the size of Birmingham and drop it into the Midlands. Although we have, in the additional <laughs> rules, given you the option to do that. So if you don't want a London-based game, we've given you the option to... We've given you some suggestions for how you could do that. Yes. You know, because the folly is expanding. We have the folly expansion document. Yes. Which was a great licence for us to have player characters. You know, the folly is expanding, they need more people. Or maybe they're opening up new branches. Yes. Yeah, so you can create your own branch of the folly in your own city if you really want to. We have advice for making your own folly up or, or have either founding it or having it established or, or having a sort of sister organisation. You know, if you want to set it in, say, the Republic of Ireland. See, so they're not going to be beholden to the London, are they? So the Dublin branch is going to be quite different. <laughs> oh, I don't want to have to think about it. <laughs> you know, we've not told you where, but, you know, this, so we're, we're trying to give... We're trying to remain true to the spirit of the books, but give GMs and players tools to make it their world and tell the stories that they're interested in, in that world. And that's, I mean, that's always a challenge, but it's been really, I mean, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. I'm hoping yeah. you've enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Ben's enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it, it's been great fun. I mean, we basically wanted to get the tone right so that, you, so that players and GMs could do what they wanted with it. Because it's the tone that they're, you know, if you're, if you're going for systems, so like with Cthulhu, it's existential dread. So, you know, you can do anything you like with it as long as it's got existential dread basically in it, unless you're doing cuddly Cthulhu. Um, and in this one, it's that slightly optimistic kind of like can-do kind of attitude that we wanted to get, that there are rules and people uh, fighting to bring order out of chaos and, and, and plan to retire at some point without their brains melting. Mm -hmm. um, so we, that's kind of what we distinguishes this from, say, like uh, the esoterrorists and the other kind of like things, which is all very had that kind of like, oh no, things are terrible, they're getting worse, you know. Admittedly, planning this as a pandemic swept across the world was a bit of a bummer, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it certainly did, it did make testing games interesting. It did make the play testing very interesting because, of course, the thing that we found when we came to get playtesting groups who were all wonderful and as Paul said were very grateful for all the work they put in was that people were playing so many games online that a lot of groups had all under normal circumstances would have loved to do this but we're already gaming four nights a week we kind of feel the need to you know so um you know so that the whole playtesting on r running games online I mean we've actually because we are old 
um, and we're all sort of like focused on running things around a table, it was actually including rules and guidelines and suggestions for how you deal with this stuff online. So we've actually consciously thought about that and added it in. You know, well, if you're, if you're using and on, you know, if you're running over the internet, you know, you know, well, you've got access to virtual gaming platforms, you might want to use them this way. And just, you know, acknowledging the fact that gaming has moved on since we all started doing it. And there's other ways of doing it now. You don't have to be around a table in person. Um, so that was an interesting challenge from my point of view, was to just stop and think occasionally that, yeah, this technology, we could use that. Yeah, I mean, it's great because you've got like Google Maps. And so, you know, we might be familiar with London, but, you know, other people around the world or other, you know, if, you, if you're not familiar with London, you know, if there's if it suddenly sort of starts and there's like a chase scene or something like that, you can bring up actual views of the London streets with people walking along them. And, you know, oh, we run down Oxford Street and then we take a left up this alleyway and, and you know, it's actually there. You know, it's, it's online for you. It's great. how I write the scenes. <laughs> Is that how you do it? Do you, do you use that? I usually do a recce. recce right. I go, and, I go and check because you can't always be sure. Because, um, like, Google Maps tends to iron out hills. Right. So you go down somewhere and you think, well, they just run down here and you get there and it's a hill that goes up the hill like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's been great as well. It's been very handy for me for art references because a lot of our artists aren't really? British. I don't think actually, I don't think we've actually got a British artist actually because they were all busy. Um, <laughs> that's it. Because again, because games production has gone into overdrive during the pandemic, so all the artists are like backed up for months in advance. And you know, we wanted it to be really pretty because that was one of the things Ben stipulated. He wanted a pretty book. Um, so you know, having software like Google Maps and various other things has meant that I could send pictures of the actual locations to artists so that they could see what their backdrops were going to be. So we do have, you know, there's some visual gags in some of the images. There's some ones that actually have the, the actual London locations in the background. It was quite entertaining digging out pictures of Greg's pasties um, <laughs> to send to one of the American artists so that, you know, Zach was eating the right pasty while he was being interrogated by a police officer. Um, and just things like that. <laughs> I to tell you about that. <laughs> I love that. That's made my day. That really has. I mean, I, I, we have a lot of problem with this because we do quite a lot of producing artwork for the comics and, and, and the other thing. You have this terrible problem because most of our artists are not British, apart from Lee Sullivan. Uh, and you, and even, even British artists have forgotten that we have blue and white tape, police tape, and you keep going, it's blue and white! Why is that so hard? It's not yellow and black, it's blue and white. You know, and then they go, and then I make them go to Holland, and I had to look up Dutch police tape, so you know, <laughs> which is red and white, by the way. But unlike the German police tape, which is red and white, has a little Dutch fleur <laughs> every every two meters or so to make absolutely sure that you're aware that you're not in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the joy of working with Ben, because I'll get emails like this going, yeah, and it's like, well, sometimes it's like, Ben, don't tell me that I can't use it. We don't have the license for it. Stop it. Uh, and then of the times it's like oh good point so well you know and it has it's been it's been a really lovely working relationship because ben has had a great deal of input into this game so that because like i said we wanted to get the tone right and that's very important to us is that we are accurately reflecting that it's also been a lot of fun because it's the best thing it's like being able to design a role-playing game without actually having to do any of the hard work which is just a dream come true really you know so like probabilities i don't worry about he worries about the probabilities and like how long you know saving scores and things like that and I don't have to I just go oh it has to be hard <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything else that you'd like to, to, to mention because I was going to say if we could do another five minutes or so and then maybe have some questions from the floor before we get thrown out uh, there's one or two random bits that I can throw in about uh, so the skill roll system we've got the the, the a similar system to the one that you might be familiar with from Call of Cthulhu uh, so we've just got the two levels now so we've got the the you, you know, you've got your skill roll, uh, which when you create your characters for most things is either 30 as basic or 60 as uh, a chosen skill. And you're just aiming to roll under the number. Or if it's a particularly difficult situation, you're, rolling to a, you're aiming to roll under half the number. So you've got the standard uh, regular difficulty and a hard difficulty. Uh, 
And as I said, there's, there's those sort of core skills or uh, common skills on your character sheet. And then there are expert skills. Uh, and those are like all the other skills. Um, so, um, you know, like chemistry or what well, science. Yeah, we've got science. science and, you've got your languages. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got archaeology, history, uh, tech, um, things like that. You know, the more specialised things that you would actually have to have some learning and understanding to be able to use properly. And rather than having those all sort of cluttering up your sheet, you don't have those to begin with. You could pick one or two things that you know you're good at. But during the game, if, if none of you have the... Um, uh, archaeology skill and, and somebody needs to use it you can do something called try your luck so you can say well actually you know I I did do a bit of archaeology back in the day you know it was a sort of uh, amateur interest of mine and you can spend some luck points and make the role and if you make it then actually that little bit of background experience does come into play and if you spend a few more luck points actually it reveals that you do have that skill we just hadn't you know, it wasn't on your sheet yet. We have, it hasn't come into play. Just like things in the novels will come out about the characters as you read on that you didn't know when you opened the book. So your character, you know, there are secret sides to your character that you don't necessarily know at the start of play that, that develop, you know, as, you, as you're playing them through, to some degree, through your own choice and to some degree through, you know, what the dice uh, roll. Yeah. And that's, I think that, I mean, again, that's that's a huge amount of fun, um, you know, revealing, because again, it's modelling storytelling. It's the fact that you, we, we, you know, your, your player character is not fully formed. You don't know anything about them. They have chance to develop in interesting ways, depending on how the rest of the story is going. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, oh, go on, what are you, what are we Well, I'm laughing because I'm just thinking it's a, it's, a it's a very lazy writing technique. <laughs> write yourself in, you write yourself into a corner and you go, suddenly I remembered those days I spent breaking down the tent. <laughs> We're role players, we want the laziest technique. Building, building my own rafts, <laughs> learning how to sail with my uncle, you know, all those kinds yeah. of things. I can sail! You've never said that before, you never came up. I just remembered. <laughs> Is there anything else? Um, I could talk about impairment. Yes, I think we should. Because obviously the big, one of the big things, if you're doing something, developing something from Call of Cthulhu, of course one of the iconic systems of course is sanity. And it didn't make sense to have sanity in this game because it's not a horror game. You know, sanity is, you know, uh, reflects the, the horror and the revelation of uh, cosmic horror in Call of Cthulhu. I said, you know, it's not a fit for this. But at the same time, there are times in the novels when um, when Peter is, is uh, in a state of shock, I suppose, and unable to act, when, um, uh, when the tree gets cut down, when the oh, trees yeah, get yeah. cut down and so on, he's, he's, he's almost like he's in a state of, uh, uh, what's the word, sort of shock, sort of unable to sort of act and sort of take in things. So we've got this idea of if something uh, unduly disturbing happens, then you can roll to see if you're impaired or if you take substantial physical harm you could be impaired and impaired means kind of unable to act fully in mechanical terms it simply means carry on as you are but your fumble range instead of just you know if i roll 100 it's a fumble it's now if, I, if you roll 90 or above it's a fumble so whatever you do you you're not you're you're not um Penalized your skills, you're just as good at all the things you do as you were before, but now is that you're much more likely to fumble, and, th and that's reflected in the gameplay thematically by uh, you know trying to tie that the result of that fumble because that's up to the players and the GM, you know, in the story as to what happens when you fumble. They can then sort of try and tie that thematically into the you know what caused your, your impairment. Yeah. Yeah, because you're stressed, you're hurt, you're not functioning at your, your highest level because, you know, life's just kind of got on top of you a bit, you know, in, in various different ways. Um, and that was something we talked a lot about at the beginning, wasn't it? Was, was you know, because it was a friend of yours you'd been talking to and they were saying, you know, when someone's been in a, ba in a bad fight, they can be that reticent the next time to sort of, like, get involved. It's like, well, how do we represent that reticence without... Mm -hmm 
you know, hesitation without having, you know, obviously not sanity because it doesn't fit. And that was when we came up with the impairment, well, you came up with impairment and we worked on it, wasn't it? So that we've got, you've got some mechanical thing to just represent the fact that, no, you're not okay. You know, things do affect you still in the world because, you know, I mean, you was it you were telling me that your your ladies who read the books, your big fans, they, they like their grisly murder per book, don't they? Yes, they have a good, horrible murder. My gruesome grannies. It's like I have a large audience section because my audience is my audience is unusually wide demographic, which drives the public, uh, the marketing people, completely bananas. And I found out that quite a large section of my audience is composed of gruesome grannies, who are these people that like Mark Billingham. And, 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 and they say things, oh, I love that bit where he ripped open his chest and put up, sewed up birds inside the victims. And, that. and they really like me because people's faces fall off. And, and so I like, to put, I, I like to put like at least one really horrible murder per book. So. And you know, people, that people, that's going to affect people. So we had, you know, we wanted to have something in there that would do that without affecting your skills, without making it yeah, so it doesn't feel, hopefully it doesn't feel like a penalty to the player. They're not, it's not like suddenly all your skills are you know, halved or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the whole point at the end of the day is this is meant to be fun. <laughs> no. So, no, I know, sorry. <laughs> um, but I think it synergizes very well with the luck system. Yeah. Because you, you find yourself impaired, but you're, you're then using your luck to counter the impairment, which is, mm. is kind of like how a narrative would work towards the end of a book, where the, where the main characters are getting more and more frizzled, frazzled, and they're kind of relying a little bit more on kind of like speed, guts, and kind of determination. A dwindling resource. And yeah. dwindling resource. And of course, the luck is a dwindling resource, so it's like it, 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 it raises the stakes as you get further into the story, which I think is a, is a, is a good thing. So I happen to like it as a. Uh, as, as part of the overall system. Right. Should we do some questions? Right, I'm going to have to stand up so I can see people. Right, gentlemen there in the, in the sort of like the, the grey top and the black mask. Hello. 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 Oh yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, we do have hypothermaturgical degradation, which is, is not nice if it goes wrong, obviously. Yes. Yeah, so there is there is a slim risk that if your dice hate you, it's not going to be pretty. So no, we have built that in. Because obviously that is an important part yes. of the story. So yeah, no, we've we Paul's done a lovely job of building that in for you, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> It also stops people running around spamming fireballs the whole day. Yeah, there is that. Any other questions? Um, this gentleman here in the white top, then I'll come to the other two gentlemen. Uh, just given that this game with like a really flashy and powerful magic system in some senses, how do you balance player experience for those people that don't want to play someone using the utility magic? So uh, how do we balance the game between people who want to use magic and who don't? So in the character creation, there are various advantages, and the way you get to be able to use magic is by taking the magical advantage. Uh, if you take the magical advantage, basically, the standard rule is you get two advantages, but the magic advantage counts as both of them. Uh, the other advantages are things that, you know, like being able to uh, be better in combat, be, you know, be able to take more damage or, or something like that, uh, or be better at social roles, or my mind's blanking um speedy so you know you've got faster reactions you've got more combat options if you're gonna if you want to play the tank basically having connect social connections perhaps with um criminal organizations criminal organizations or whoever might that might be so these are there to kind of give those non-magical players an, a somewhat of an edge and i think also it's worth remembering that once you start playing, as players, you're all kind of on, on a level. Yes, some of you can do magic, but at, you know, at, as a starting player, you've perhaps got Weir Light, you've maybe got Fireball, that, that is, it's kind of an unmastered spell, and you've perhaps got one of the minor spell. They're not, you're not a massively powerful magician. 
So I think the, the, the power difference uh, is perhaps less than it perhaps seems because having wheel light, well, you know, I've got um, in my pocket, I've pretty much got a wheel light on my phone, right? The effect of being able to, to shine a light around, I know it's not the same, but being able to, I, I can, you know, I can do magic. <laughs> and if I, if I was in an American setting, if I've got a handgun, mechanically, often that's not that different to being able to use a fireball. You know, I can, I can shoot bullets. So I, I kind of see those, those sort of lower, lower order spells, having a couple of those utility-wise doesn't necessarily set you... It's not like you're a seventh-level wizard. You know, um, and everybody else is just a mundane. Yeah. So I mean, let's face it, in Rivers of London, the first novel, Peter spends most of it just knowing where light looks. Mm, yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like, we're, we're a bit more generous than that. You do get two first order spells and a second order spell, you know, because otherwise, <laughs> you're like, no, you've got where light, that's it. <laughs> you know, that's all you're getting for at least the first two case files, because we're calling scenarios case files just to be, you know, keep it in yeah. on brand, hip. Um, so, yes, there were two other questions. We've only got a few minutes left, so we're going to do these quickly. There was a gentleman over there with a white mask on and a gentleman. That was a gentleman at the back there with the school mask, is that? Uh, that's Yoda. Oh, is it Yoda? Sorry, I need new glasses. Hello, you. <laughs> uh, this is Russell. He's, he's done some stuff for us on other things. He's doing his PhD now. Oh. MA. Oh, right. Oh, I'll keep my fingers crossed for you, Pet. Uh, yeah, strange question, but the, do you have any plans for any English crossover? Is Instagram going to be the uh, first King in Yellow? <laughs> I don't think the King in Yellow would stand a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, against some of the others, I, I wouldn't fancy Peter's chances, but against the King in Yellow, I think, yeah, I think the King may give up and go home. <laughs> Five minutes with all those those cross genre references. I think it's just gonna fuck off. <laughs> None that are planned. <laughs> if you want to do that in your games, obviously because it is based on Call of Cthulhu Sevens, you know you have our blessing to go do that. Because I know I've said to various to various people this before. Once you've bought it. There's not a little spy camera in there watching what you're doing. Once you have it, it's yours and you can do with it what you want. So yes, you know, if you do want to do your Call of Cthulhu crossovers, yeah, go and have fun with it. Um, but we have no official plans for that, obviously, at the moment. Sorry, I just saw this image of Riley uh, rising from the sea and Cthulhu coming up and getting drowned by Mama Thames. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wouldn't fancy his chances against Mama, actually. It's yeah, like, no. I'm busy! <laughs> Any other questions before we wrap up? Oh, oh. right, so um, we'll go for this gentleman and then we'll work back, so... Okay, um, give us some fascinating snippets into game mechanics. Would you be able to describe a short scene from one of the books in how that would work? Oh, I, we can even better than that. Um, Gavin Inglis has done um, the uh, domestic as a solo adventure, which will be in the introduction that was there to introduce you to the rules, but also to show you how you can, you can use the stories as inspiration for your own plots. Um, that, that's actually going to be the first chapter of the book uh, when it comes out. Um, so, yeah, that's, you're going to have to wait. But, you know, we have, obviously, because you know, that was, was one of the things that you wanted, wasn't it? Yes. To, 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 I mean, and we wanted a solo adventure because it worked very well in the starter set. And so you're working on the cockpit. Um, well. Yeah, and I've converted the cockpit into an introductory scenario for later in the book. So I haven't finished doing all the edits on that yet, but um, then Ben will get a look at it and tell me off for ruining his story. Um, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, we, you know we are we're trying to give those tools to people as well, so that you can look at the stories and then take those forward. Um, and we say we've we've started up most of the other people as well. So there's a young lady here with the lovely red hair. You talked about um, alternative settings, uh, and I was wondering if um, that's more about giving people the tools to um, adapt real world locations to um, yeah to the game. 
or if it's more allowing them to make up their own? Um, you can do, obviously, you can do both. So we do give you guidelines for creating your own organisations that you can place wherever you want them and they can be real places because some people find it easier to run stuff if it's in a location that they know. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, I, I come down to London once a year to do this um, under sufferance because it's London, there's too many people. Um, whereas, you know, I might want to run one in Newcastle, which is where I live. And I know Newcastle, that's so that's... Small village. That's small village, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Southerners. Um, so, you know, that, that you know, so we've, we'll give you the support to do that. But if you want to, as Ben says, if you want to make up an entire city and plonk it down somewhere, um, or a tiny village in the Dales somewhere that's been cut off from... You know, it's not that I've done that before. Um, you know, so you can you can do that. You know, and but yes, it's very much about giving you the tools to make it your game and have fun. Now there was somebody else over there. Um, there's another one here. Not yet, not yet. But we were literally discussing. If you buy the book and it's popular, then we do have plans to do that. Yes. So you will all have to buy it to make sure it's popular, so that we can do that supplement. Well, I will be very happy people that can actually just play with the foxes. Oh no, the foxes are started. The foxes are started. They are in the rogues gallery, Marcus. Can you blow up people's mobile phones? Yes. Yes. Yes, we do have rules for what technology does to spell, uh, spells do to technology. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, you know, you can direct your wear lights to, to just go and. Yeah, yeah, no, we've, we've, we've accounted for that, yes. <laughs> right, well, I think that's probably about all we've got time for. Thank you so much for coming. If you could please thank. My lovely co-panelists. And um, sometime next year. Just don't ask when. <laughs> so stay, stay safe and take care, everybody. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have T-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, that wraps up this special episode. Please join us next week for another of our standard episodes which will be the first episode of a multi-part look at H.P. Lovecraft's weird fantasy novel, The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Until then, cheerio for now. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.